I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Rebecca Watson on her debut novel, Little Scratch. Rebecca Watson is assistant arts editor at the Financial Times, and she has been published in the Times Literary Supplement, Granter and Vogue. And in 2018, she was shortlisted for the White Review Short Story Prize. And Rebecca's debut novel we're going to be talking about today is Little Scratch. Rebecca, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe Little Scratch. I would describe Little Scratch as, I guess, inhabiting the mind of a young woman from when she wakes up to when she falls asleep, no stopping. But it's it's written strangely. It looks at least strange initially. Um, it's kind of half prose and it slips into columns and fragments uh, to look at the way in which we experience you know, immediacy, present tense, um, and, and how all of these things are kind of, you know, multitudes rather than one linear, solid line. Well, you say there it's, it's sort of half prose. Um, we're going to obviously talk about the style in a little while, but just to, just to pick up on that, have you seen it described otherwise then? Um, I think people are still working out how to describe it. It's, you know, I mean, uh, some people say at points it's like poetry, at points it's kind of like text. Um, but I, I think people are perhaps confused by the appearance of it. But if you are to say, read it out loud, then you would hear it as prose or half prose. Um, narrator, of the, the protagonist of this, this story is unnamed. Um, and as you said, we basically inhabit her point of view for a whole day. Tell us something about her. Sure. Um, so she's in her 20s and the day in which we meet her is a, a Friday in June. And I think the idea is, obviously, we've become very you know, intimate and kind of voyeuristic, you know, a way of, of seeing her and meeting her. So we've just experienced every single thought she has within one day. Um, and she's an office worker. She works as a kind of administrative assistant at a newspaper or media company. But we don't learn loads about her biography. We know a lot about her kind of most kind of pressing concerns and thoughts Um but I think the the most we learn literally about her is, you know, this job that she has and kind of a few family and friends around her. 
Um, and now it started, this novel started as a short story. In fact, I believe this is the, the short story that was shortlisted for the White Review Prize. And then obviously it's developed into a novel. So tell us about how it was presented as a story and then how it developed. Yeah, so the story actually now sits basically exactly in the middle of the book. Um, so it was the lunch break during the day. And I mean, I'd, I don't really write short stories, although I kind of accidentally do. I think... Um, this, you know, original short story, which was also called Little Scratch, was essentially a passage or, or a unit um, of the book. And so when I started writing, I, I guess I wasn't really aware of what the boundaries were going to be of, of how far I was going to write it. Um, and I, I wrote it kind of especially for the, the White Review Short Story Prize just because I was trying to distract myself from a different project. Um, and so I started writing that and I've had a, a moment of inspiration that got me writing a certain moment and then that short story happened but as soon as I'd submitted it to the prize I kept on writing kept on pushing it kind of essentially the boundaries on either side to see how far in the chronology I could take it and so I don't know I it's a kind of strange thing to call it a story when people always ground it as the story I mean I think in in a way it was you know the beginning of the book and the way that most people begin a book it's just because it was, you know, published already, it suddenly seems quite confused. I want to talk about what, the, for you, the challenges of, of writing this story from, I guess, such a, a limited perspective. But it's also like, you know, because of, we'll talk about, you know, her pressing concerns in a little while. But because of her frame of mind as well, it's an incredibly claustrophobic perspective as well. So I wonder what it was like for you to actually you know, to actually get this out on paper and work on it and develop it. Mm, yeah, um, very intense. I mean, obviously she's very neurotic and also very performative. And so she has an incredibly loud voice. And I often did feel I was writing, it was quite a kind of quick writing experience. And whenever I was writing, it would, some particularly some passages would be written very, very quickly. Um, there's a kind of rhythm to it. And, and a speed and I think that's partly because I would kind of be hearing this voice and be like right gotta get this down get, gotta get this down before I lose it but yeah it's it is a very claustrophobic voice it's it's intentionally claustrophobic um because I kind of wanted the reader to have to be I mean this makes it sound like an unpleasant experience but you know they're kind of trapped in this person's head and you kind of get a sense of what it is to be trapped in someone's head and what it is to kind of live through this day when you know things are not right you know when someone's um suffering from the aftermath of sexual assault um what is that like constantly rather than just in a moment and yeah so it, it was definitely overwhelming but also I think very familiar I mean the real starting point of this was just thinking about like neurotic thought patterns and that's just fleeting concerns that we might have that we then forget a second later but in writing them down suddenly you have to kind of remember them there's two things going on here as well so not only are we are we sort of privy to the you know the innermost neurotic thoughts of the narrator but also obviously the time period as well this is over you know just one day and so she is also relating to us time passing as well and often these things will work in sort of almost two separate columns, two separate streams. So tell me something about that, about the challenges of writing in that dual register of where, you know, two separate things are going on in the narrative. Yeah. So that, this kind of started because I was, yeah, I essentially was just thinking about immediate present tense. And I think I was frustrated at the way that 
prose relies on you to wait to the end of the paragraph or the sentence to get like two, three, four things that are happening at the same time. And so really the first thing I was doing was just trying to train myself to say, okay, what really happens in a single moment? What happens in a minute? You know, how much of the exterior world, what we see, what we hear, you know, what hits against our ankles, like these kind of things that exist and, you know, aren't necessarily as important as the thoughts we're having at the same time. And yet we have to coexist with. And so when I was writing the book, it was really looking at those collisions and those coexisting kind of entities and how how to get them to the page at the same time, which is why I obviously had to break into different channels and there's kind of this over overwhelming bombardment at times when you have too much going on. And that's, you know, if you're on the commute and you have uh, the kind of announcements going on and the people around you, plus the thoughts that you have, like, how do you navigate that? Like, that is a difficult thing to navigate that we're used to doing. But if you're going through certain things and suddenly what you're navigating becomes far more literal, far, you're far more aware of what you're doing. And I also want to talk about, I guess, the writing. This book is it's absolutely engrossing and gripping and it absolutely flies along as you're reading it. But ostensibly nothing happens. <laughs> There's not a plot as such. So we're entirely gripped by her own sort of fractured mental state. But literally all that happens is she gets up in the morning, goes to work, does her job, meets her boyfriend later, they go out, they come home. And like, that's literally what happens in the story. And yet, you know, it, it absolutely grabs you by the throat and won't let go until you put it down. I read the book in like, it's not an incredibly long book, but I, I read it in two sittings. It was kind of a concern, but I, I really fought against it because I wanted, I wanted the urgency to be found in what seems, yeah, plotlessness. It's, it's this, the kind of nature of existence um, certainly has this kind of, jeopardy and that's what I really wanted to explore was the fact that that everydayness of just doing the you know the daily grind and getting through a conversation with a colleague these kind of things that aren't meant to be difficult suddenly have this heightened jeopardy when you're also kind of having this very severe psychological reckoning and so yeah my, it was very important for me that there was this kind of propelling urgent thread despite the fact that you shouldn't feel propelled and that's to do with the kind of subjectivity right I mean we're obviously we're inside her head and for her the question of whether she can get through the day or not is actually a real question and so I wanted to kind of transfer that urgency into all of these kind of literal physical movements um, and thoughts, um, which is why, as, as you were saying about kind of the way in which the physical exists on the page, like that's so important there in a way of kind of making the reader move on because you're constantly walking or sitting or doing something with her. And to what extent was that important as well in your writing of it? What are the sort of challenges of writing a story in this particular format? So in, in when we get to the second half, I want to actually talk about that sort of more prosaically in terms of how it looks on the page. But in terms of you writing it, the process of writing it, how did it look as you were writing it? <laughs> um, well, I wrote by hand mainly, which helped. <laughs> um, and I would, I would kind of write maybe a few thousand words at a time by hand and then uh, the editing would be in the in the writing up and so it looks very similar to how it looks typeset um except obviously it's very immaculately done by my typesetter Kate Ward and you know put into kind of far neater ways but those columns and those overlaps and you know I when I was writing I, I would really be jumping across the page I'd be kind of be writing quickly one narrative down the side knowing I would then be like 
jumping my hand to the right hand side to then put something else there and knowing I was kind of constantly playing catch up because I knew where the things were going to be going on the page there is a there's a literal system um which we'll talk about to the page and so it was kind of this weird um seesawing effect as I was writing and so let's talk about what that was like then I mean obviously they they knew what was coming but when you like hand over these sort of handwritten pages to Faber and say you know this is how I would like it to look on the page how does that because this is not something I would normally be discussing about you know how a novel looks on the page very rarely Mm -hmm. but it's absolutely critical to the reading and the enjoyment of this book is exactly how the words are set out on the page yeah well I mean I I didn't hand over the like handwritten pages I I would type it up myself and then you know I would I would literally be using the space bar and tab like aggressively um to as I was going I'm yeah I think John Self the critic shared a picture of my book a while ago and he made some joke about me needing a new shift key which I don't but I can understand why he might think I do and so I think it was actually really good because I would go between writing very quickly on the page to having to because of it being quite like a difficult process to get into Google Docs you know you really have to take it very slowly and so your awareness of the words and what you're kind of inputting um, becomes something very very precise and so I think that really helped to the kind of subconsciousness of the editing process but when I sent it to you know when, when Faber bought it when it became you know typesetting it it was really Obviously, there were limitations of what you could fit on the page. I was working from a quite wide notepad. And the format of this book is wider than a lot of books are because we needed to essentially have as much space across the page as possible. And even then, there were points where essentially my typesetter would say, look, you can't fit this passage across the page. Like, it's not physically possible. Um, And so then I would kind of rework it in order to be able to keep it within the confines of um, the typesetting. And so there were moments like that and a lot of back and forth as well as she was typesetting where I'd be like, oh, I'm really sorry. Can you please move this bit just a little bit to the left? Um, And she was very, very patiently receptive to all of that. Um, And so it was definitely a very collaborative and lengthy process, let's say. Well, you mentioned John Zell's reaction, but how how are you finding people are, are reacting to the way that the book set out? Positively, I'd say, which I I don't know. I mean, obviously, because, you know, my agent was very excited about it and there was an auction and stuff. And so there was obviously a real kind of openness to it in a way in which I wasn't expecting at all. And since then, I've found that readers, I mean, now it's published both in the US and the UK over the last few months. Um, I've been able to suddenly be tapped into kind of the general reader reaction. And a lot of people have, you know, messaged me on Twitter and told me about their reaction to it and so many of them have essentially said completely what I wanted them to react which is that you know maybe initially they were sort of taken aback by how it looked but quite quickly they found a kind of intuition to it um, and maybe they recognized certain patterns from their own thoughts um, but they were able to kind of navigate the page in what felt like a very kind of instinctive way which is yeah exactly how I hope them to do. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rebecca Watson, and we're talking about her debut novel, Little Scratch. And Rebecca, in the in the second part, I want us to talk a little bit more about the subject matter of the story. Before we get there, the book is surprisingly funny in a lot of places for a book that's about fundamentally about rape and workplace harassment. And there's one particular passage I thought was funny where you talk about autofiction and... You work in journalism and, you know, it seems to be my experience over the years of interviewing authors is that young women journalists and writers are much more likely to be sort of pressured into writing about themselves, their personal lives, their own experiences. Now, this is a work of fiction, but it's a first person unnamed narrator. And I presume you are playing with those sort of ideas in this book, because there are a lot of people that are going to read this and and wonder if it's autobiographical. Absolutely, there will be. Yeah. And um, I'm glad to pick up on that autofiction moment, because Yeah, it's this point in the book where I think she opens a WhatsApp chat and sees that these people are discussing how this writer must be actually writing about themselves in the novel. And the narrator both both agrees and disagrees at the same time against herself. And I think, yeah, it was kind of a funny moment for me. And I, I really remember writing that passage and being like... Okay, some readers might feel told off at this point. Because, yeah, this, this is very much a work of fiction. Um, but I was, you know, playing with... I don't know, it was there was almost something playful about it, about stealing some environments I know. Like, you know, I know what it's like to work in a newsroom. Um, I'm obviously a young woman, but these kind of environmental tags are, are very very broad stroke things that they don't tell you anything about a person but can be very easily you know can very easily spot the comparisons but you know her story is not mine and so I I definitely had fun with it I actually wrote a brief character into the book who is me as a way of kind of being able to push away and say well actually you know I'm elsewhere um which is this character uh her colleague actually who offers her tea Oh, the woman that keeps coming over and being nice yeah. to her. Yeah, and like, you know, there's a kind of 
almost, I don't know, I, I describe her quite positively because I figured that the narrator of my book is going to see the author as someone, you know, quite positive. Um, you know, she, I've brought her into creation, so the least she can do is kind of admire the back of my head. And so, yeah, there is there is a kind of essentially a walk-on character in the same way, I guess, that many filmmakers like to stick themselves in for a three-second cameo, which was just a way of pointing elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely already had many loaded questions about you know trying to connect my own experiences to the book I think people are very I don't know very obsessed with finding truth you know it's it's almost this thing of feeling uncomfortable about reading something that feels real but it not being real it's like we can't can't reconcile that and so we have to be able to kind of you know sew it up neatly and have you found that as well in your in your own career that as a, as a journalist that you, you're sort of expected to be more open in your writing? I think I'm, I think I kind of just write what I want to write, which is maybe just out of, you know, the certain situations I've been in where I've, I've been able to choose or because I've only said yes to what I want to do. I think, you know, that is definitely a, a thing that happens. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it from my own experience. Can we talk about writing about sexual assault rape the assault that the narrator has experienced is a very intense violent Mm -hmm. experience that she's had it was I mean it's you know it's a very uh, I think I really shied away from um writing it kind of too gratuitously um you kind of get fragments shards of it um insinuations but I but you don't you don't get a yeah I didn't write a rape scene I didn't want to I think that my ambition when I was writing this book was to look at genuinely the ways in which memory works through trauma. And, you know, one of the key things is that trauma fractures memory. Often survivors of rape can struggle to remember accurately what's happened to them, or at least in kind of a very clear linear way, or at least not initially. And so I really wanted to write against linearity to depict it in this kind of fragmented, um, ambiguous and nuanced way, which is why, yeah, as I said, I, you know, I didn't write a kind of linear rape scene or uh, a linear understanding of it. And I think, to be honest, like the experience of writing that kind of taps into everything, you know, the fact that we, that, you know, within this book, the fact that we don't have a kind of clear biography of her life, all of these different things are kind of different explorations of like essentially diverting from linearity and I wanted her to have a kind of you know hard-won place where she isn't redeemed she isn't like resolved there isn't really a kind of any resolution or solution or anything you know you you end the day as you began the day and you know some people may end it thinking that there is hope and other people may end it thinking that the next day is going to be exactly the same I think it was important that that was how I ended it. And indeed, she's ambiguous about what's happened in terms of, I mean, I guess through learned experience in terms of how rape and sexual assault is dealt with both through the legal systems and obviously in sort of work power structures in that this violent attack has happened. She's had this experience, but she's not told anyone. Um, She's obviously not told the police. In fact, she's trying to get on with life. It's her way of whether this is her way of dealing with it or just that she knows that there's almost no point 
attempting recourse for this for what's happened to her um i really don't want to like make an assertion beyond what she says i kind of feel like i'm mm. putting words in her mouth even though i'm the writer um but I, I think the idea was all of those all of those things and more sat in the book but i don't think she's even necessarily clear on why she's doing what she's doing or even i'm not sure that she's actually reached a decision yet like this is the kind of space of time when she's still not even fully confronting what's happened to her, at least for most of the book. A lot of this is happening kind of as background or as moments of like attention before it's thrust back. Because also, I mean, I don't know if I just missed this, but we're not actually sure when this actually happened. No, there's, well, there's a bit, um, there's like basically one mention near the beginning where it implies that it's about six weeks ago. And that's when she's on the train and she talks about how long it's been since she last wrote. Um, and there's a connection to that mm. where there's a kind of psychological block of writing, yeah. which which is connected to like her inability to confront what's happened to her. And so it's about, it's about that length of time ago. Um, I think some people will initially misperceive it as a, as a having happened the night before because she wakes up with a kind of grogginess and confusion, which is from something separate. Um, and so, you know, these things exist in this kind of haze and, and kind of unclarity initially, or, or maybe for some, for the whole book, because she's not, it's, it's that thing of like, if you're inside someone's head, knowledge is immediate rather than explained. And so there are certain things that she will not think in a clear, factual way, i.e. this thing happened then, or today is you know x number of weeks from this and so yeah I think I was really trying to push away from those kind of easy planted things that a writer might put in a book in order to kind of give a clear timeline. Can we talk about if there are other writers that were an influence on your I'm thinking particularly of the of the style of the book here. Well, I, I really struggle with the answer to that question just because I, I kind of felt for this, I mean, this form particularly was something that, you know, I really devised on the page and it was a system that was that was new to me and, it, you know, it didn't come from someone else or or kind of reading a certain type of writing. Um, I think there are certain, there are certain people I can kind of say, okay, maybe, maybe they did something, but they might not be that obvious. Like the Spanish novelist Javier Marias, who very much writes in straight prose, um, but I would say he was a real influence because he writes these sentences that you know just like go on and on and on and take you from one place to another and then right back to where you started and that kind of pushing and pushing and pushing on like the sentence and how far a thought can take you was something that I remember thinking about from the first few hundred words I wrote where I actually remember thinking in my head no keep going when I was about to finish the sentence I was like no keep going you can do this like if Javier Marias can you know, extend you across three pages, you can keep carrying on for a little bit. And so, so people like that, Sarah Kane, the playwright for her, the kind of violence of language that she writes and the, the kind of ways in which, you know, neurosis um, and trauma can really just like burst you out of kind of commonplace language. And I think a lot of the kind of uses of like expletives and aggressive language, um, I'm sure is inspired by her. But in terms of form, that's when I kind of, it's my struggle to say who. To finish off then, can I get you to, to read us a bit? Yes. 
I'm just going to read a short bit, which is about, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. It's, she's just suddenly remembered the morning, basically. It's that kind of point in the day where you think, oh yeah, like, wow, I woke up this morning and this is what I did. And you kind of ground yourself back in the day. Remembering the tepid water by my bed, this morning, awake to a dry mouth, then hungover, now seemingly fine. Fine, as in not hungover anyway. I'm not fine in the general sense. I've made that clear, reserved enough space in my head for acknowledging that I'm not fine. But yes, it is the point in the day where this morning no longer feels like this morning. And yet it was, obviously. I didn't have time to dawdle, to float. I just drank water and showered and hurried and felt okay because I did not have time to feel any other way. A new tactic, perhaps. Setting my alarm late, overfilling my time. I know that this will not work, but I consider it. If only to fill the space where I could be thinking something else. Yes, from now on, I'll arrive everywhere late and start everything late and oversubscribe until my eyes burst and my head hurts. It already does, but even more, I guess. Body stretched until I do not know who I am or what I want or where I am or how I got here or what happened to me that time, hand on me, mouth full, saying no, 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 yes, that time then, which I'm not thinking about. Instead, I think about art galleries. A decent diversion, no. I decide, without much decisiveness, I will no longer go to art galleries with other people. It is too much. Having to give an allotted time to each painting, staring without seeing. Has this painting been given enough attention? Will my companion suppose I've appreciated it now? It's not that I don't like art, naturally. It's just I can't like it all. I don't have the reputation that allows me to be selective, to walk into a room and examine this one and this one, cursory glance at the rest, shake head and move on. Sometimes I think art is incredible. A popular opinion. But sometimes I think... What do I actually get out of it? How much more am I getting than when I see an attractive person on the tube and take the time to notice each part of their outfit, clocking through, studying the fringing on their trousers and the way they've drawn liner across their lids before moving back to staring into nothing? What is the difference, really, truly, honestly? Yes, other times this seems to me a ridiculous argument to make, one I do not agree with whatsoever and would not condone, would frown on if someone were to make it. But I cannot stand still. I find myself flitting, doubting I have the capacity to appreciate or understand, wondering if there is even anything there to understand. And when I flit to this, I fear I will not return. And all the while, I must firmly assert that I'm not thinking it, firmly assert my appreciation and understanding of art, never allowed to have doubts. And these doubts which I have regardless mean even when I'm not having doubts, I remember that I've had them and fear that I might still be faking it somehow. So I've been talking to Rebecca Watson. We've been talking about her debut novel, Little Scratch, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.